In this episode, I am joined by Lionel Snell, a contemporary English magician, publisher, and under various pen names such as Ramsey Dukes, renowned author on magic and philosophy. Lionel shares his life's journey in magic, explores his years reading mathematics at Cambridge University, immersing in the work of British occultists Alistair Crowley and Austin Spare, and how an experimental group ritual had unexpected and tragic implications. Lionel discusses the true meaning of initiation, the serious dangers of becoming involved in magic, and his time in the OTO alongside figures such as Gerald Suster. Lionel also considers subjects such as the importance of magical thinking, the tension between structure and freedom, the role of banishing rituals, and the cycles of a person's life. So without further ado, Lionel Snell. Lionel Snell, welcome to the podcast. I'm so delighted to be talking to you today about your life and work and uh, your various publications. It's really quite a thrill for me this episode. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So I thought we might first start off biographically. I'm mm. curious if you, if you could say something about the context of your upbringing and your childhood. Yes. I was brought up in the deep country. Uh, my father bought a ruined water mill in 1946 and I was born in 1945. And um, so brought up without another house in sight, uh, no electricity, um, uh, yeah, very simple. And I was the youngest child. So that um, as far as I was concerned, I was the smallest, least uh, competent thing around, <laughs> youngest kid stuff, because there weren't many other younger children than me within reach. It was a, it was a, you know, we're in deep country. Now, the like, I think any kid is interested in magic to some extent. You know, you love these stories of going into woods and find mysterious places, you know. Um, but the 50s, when I was brought up, was a very sceptical era. So that um, there wasn't much, there was nothing like the stuff that's around now. For example, there was a, a newspaper called, or magazine called Prediction, which really was an astrology magazine, but it would have the odd article about runes and things like that. And so that was about the only contact I had. Uh, we had a friend of the family who used to come for the summer and, and live in the outhouse. And he was quite into alternative ideas. And he got me trying out being psychic, you know, seeing if we could win the football pools by dowsing and things like that. So it sort of kept my interest going. And then he had a friend who came to visit called Ted Bryant, who I didn't realize until many years later was actually a Crowley disciple. And um, uh, so he said, my friend who's coming is a magician. So of course, I, as a little sort of, I know, seven-year-old, I rushed around and said, can you do me some magic? He said, yes, I'll do it tomorrow. And I went around the next day and he said, well, I said I'd do it tomorrow. This isn't tomorrow. This is today. You know? <laughs> In other words, first bit of trickster that I came across. Um, and uh, it wasn't really till I went to the boarding school in Clifton that um, Prediction had a review of the Watkins, new Watkins edition of the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramel in the Mage, done in 1956. And it said, you know, this is the real deal sort of thing in so many words. So I ordered it from the Gloucester City Library and they got it for me. So I, I kept it for you know, months, as long as I could, um, read it up and 
as I said, by then I was a 10 year old, no, 11 year old. I thought, well, when I grow up, I'm going to do this. But of course, growing up isn't that simple. So it got shelved for a long time. Um, but that sort of taught me there is something here. The other thing was that the school science library had a fantastic collection of books on alchemy in particular and magic. You know, all the great names, Agrippa, Paracelsus, all this sort of stuff, and you know, going right back into the past, old leather-bound volumes. Uh, because a previous uh, head of science had been uh, the historian of alchemy who did the penguin history of alchemy, a guy called Holmyard. So I was able to take home these books by Agrippa in the holidays you know, and read them. And they struck me as being, well, some were weird, but they struck me as being very sensible, their observations, you know, what happens with earth, air, fire, and water. And so I was interested in this. And I said, you know, why don't people talk about magic very much? You know, it's, they said, well, because it doesn't exist. It's nothing. That was the sort of what the culture told me. And I said, but why are all these books about it? You know, why are people say, believe in it? They said, well, you know, if you're brought up in a primitive culture that believes in fairies and spirits, things like that, it's like you're brainwashed. You'll see them where they aren't there. Now, I think it's nascent mathematician in me has a sense of symmetry. So what I said is, well, I'm brought up in a culture which says they don't exist. So if a fairy appeared, I wouldn't see it, would I? And that's a bit unanswerable to them. But that really was very basic to my thinking, you know, that um, uh, if our beliefs shape what we actually experience, then let's improve, stretch our beliefs a bit. <laughs> um, so that was sort of, that was very fundamental. Um, the when I got to Cambridge, there's a really good collection of Crowley stuff in Cambridge because, of course, he went there, and um, uh, I'd been a bit wary of Crowley because the only books I'd found on magic were people like W. E. Butler and Diane Fortune, who sort of say, you know, be careful of Crowley, um, not a good influence. But when I read his actual material, I was very impressed by it. Uh, magic and theory and practice, uh, books like that. And one of the things he said, which is very fundamental to my way of looking at magic is, um, he said, you have a will to make something happen. You do certain things and you get results. And he says, that is magic. But what you can't deduce from that is that therefore something about the nature of reality, which is absolute. Um, you know, you... So if you've invoked a spirit and done things, it doesn't prove in a scientific way that spirits exist. Just you found a way of working that works. And that is very fundamental to um, how I see magic. And it feeds into my idea of you know, different ways of looking at the world and you get different results. So that was um, Cambridge. Uh, also in the library was a magazine I came across called New Dimensions. And I discovered that it was now being published not far from me, near Cheltenham. Um, and um, I, I went along there and it was a good sort of occult, secondhand occult shop they had there. And they put me in touch with various people like William Gray and to a lesser extent, um, uh, Gareth Knight people who were writing about magic in those days. 
and also uh, uh, Gerald York, who of course was well known as a, a Crowley disciple in the past, who had made a magical vow to keep records of all his books. And so I used to go along there and, you know, he'd tell me a lot about um, Crowley, lend me some books and things like that. Also about um, Buddhism, because by then uh, he'd make, he was keeping his magical vow to look after the Crowley collection, but he was much more interested in Buddhism by then. You know, he was some president of the British Buddhist Society or something like that. And uh, amongst the things he lent me was uh, a book by Austin Spare, The Book of Pleasure. Now, I heard of Austin Spare from the writings of Francis King, who in one chapter in, I think it was Sexuality, Magic and Perversion or some title like that, he had a chapter on Austin Spare and he described them as a sort of, as it were, the Zen of Western magic. Now, that was appealed like anything to me because I was very into um, Taoism and that sort of Eastern Chinese and Japanese philosophy. So I had to find out about him. And Gerald lent me these books. And um, I started collecting everything I could buy of Austin Spare. And in those days, you could go into a, a large second-hand bookshop and say, have you got anything by Austin Spare? And they would find something. <laughs> so I got a great collection. And what struck me was that um, whereas Crowley had such a wide range of ideas, you know, he had his Buddhist phase, he had his um, Enochian phase, the magic phase, all these different phases. And he was a great integrator. But Austin Spare had a single, basically a sort of single idea, magical theory about the relationship with the unconscious and unconscious resistance stopping things happening. And so it was a contrast between the two, but I found him very interesting. And I wrote uh, an article called Spare Parts which was really an introduction to the Book of Pleasure. And someone had started a magazine in uh, Bath nearby called Agape. And I got to know them and, and they said, let's do a sort of an Austin Spare edition. We'll publish a facsimile of the Anathema of Zos, which is one of his books, and my article, Spare Parts. And so I think through that, I got known by the people who were going to become the Chaos Magic Current. Then it was mid-70s when Christopher McIntosh, who's um, an academic who's written a lot since about um, the Rosicrucians, Masonism, Masonic, and things like that. And he said he was planning to do a book about, um, I don't know how you, other mystical systems or something, a, a compilation. He said it'd be very interesting. Of course, we're going to do sort of yoga and things like that. It'd be very interesting to have a chapter on Western magic. Would you write it? So I wrote uh, an essay about magic to go into the book. Now, that publication didn't happen. So I was left with this fairly lengthy essay about magic. And I realized I could make the book and publish it myself because with a, an old pupil of mine, I'd set up a little publishing business. And that was what I call Sosopomy, S-S-O-T-B-M-E, um, which is, um, the title is a bit of a very sort of 1960s jive because it stands for Sex Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed. And of course, it's not that sort of book, but I 
in it, I talk about why people like books with titles like that and you know why they're not realistic. So anyway, I, I wrote that and published it myself. And uh, um, used to go around secondhand book, you know, alternative bookshops, leaving copies. And so that gained a bit of a following. And then I wrote Thunder Squeak after I'd done the Abram Lynn operation. And uh, I almost gave up on it because, you know, it's so hard work selling these things until um, I have, was visited by a man from Iceland who said, I want to take back 10 copies of Thunder Squeak because it's become an underground cult classic amongst the punks of Reykjavik. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I've made it at last. So little things like that encouraged me along the way. Um, but uh, basically, that was how my, my work started. Later, I was invited to um, join the OTO when it was being revived in England for the first time after many years. And so I did become a, a formal member of the OTO, and I've gone through the initiations quite a step. The other thing is that the chaos magic movement built up to some extent around my, my ideas, you know, my ideas about Austin Spare and SSOTB and Thundersqueak were seen as an important book. And so um, I was invited, I was initiated to the IOT, but I never went up through the ranks of that because um, it's actually rather nice to be a junior doing other people's rituals. You know? I used to like that. It's like Dolores Ash, Ash I don't know how you pronounce her name, Dolores Ashcroft Nuecki. Um, she held a series of seminars on magic, ritual magic in Bath. And I went along to join them. And someone said to me, what are you doing here? You don't need this, this is very elementary. And I said, no, I, I'm always learning. And um, so I got it, did, Joy did some of her rituals and it was great for me having someone else organizing it all. And I really responded to that. So I was always prepared to sort of try things coming at the bottom line and um, you know, have a go. And so I have been some association with particular groups, but basically I've been forged my own path over the years. If we were to go right back actually to where you began, mm. could you say something about your, a little bit more about your family of origin, your parents, what were they, what were they doing oh, yes. and so on? Mm. And also, did you have any kind of religious context at that point when you were a child? My parents met in a movement called the Kibbo Kift, uh, which was between the wars. Uh, it was a sort of, I think of it as a proto-hippie movement in a way, um, because it was founded by a guy called John Hargrave. And he had been a scout you know, in the scout movement before the war. And there were one or two people like him who joined the scouts. And it's a fantastic, you know, the things you learn as a young man and survival and all that and, and you know, living in nature. But he was so horrified by his experience of what happened in World War I that when they came out, and he, several people did this, he was one of them who said, the scouting system is terrific, but I can't stand the military aspects of it, you know, marching and all that type of thing. So he founded a woodcraft movement called the Kibbo Kift, 
And there's another one that was found at the same time, I think, you know, just sort of about 1920 or so called, I think it's called the Woodcraft Folk or something like that. You know, so there were one or two people thinking along those lines. Now the Kibbo Kift uh, uh, used a lot of sort of Nordic symbolism. They had a style, it was a very artistic movement. They had a style of um, producing and books have been produced more recently about the Kibbo Kift and its, its sort of artistic output. But um, basically, they, they had an idea of sort of changing the world, like you know, visionary young people. And um, uh, in fact, he wrote a book called The Confession of the Kibbo Kift, where he expounded his philosophy. And that title, The Confession of the Kibbo Kift, was inspired by the Confession of the Rosicrucians, the Rose Cross. Yeah. Um, and it was the idea that uh, history could be changed by certain people who um, were trained and very intelligent and particularly they were in contact with nature so that you know they were grounded really grounded people um, they could become like the power behind the throne and could direct humanity's development to something better and uh, so that's where my parents met and so there was a sort of element of idealism that and what happened to the Kimbo Kift is it became political towards the Second World War. Um, you had the red shirts with the communists, the black shirts with the Nazis, the fascists, and they became the green shirts. And so there was sort of, you know, battles on the streets of these three. Um, and, uh, but they didn't survive the war. Um, the movement packed up in quite an interesting way because at the end of the confession of the Kimbo Kift, there's a wonderful piece about the time to go down back into the earth. Very much a sort of, um, uh, you know, knowing when to step back, to step down, to go underground, rather like a seed to grow dead in the future. And I think that really is what he did because after when I was born and grown up, I didn't know he was still alive until there was an article in New Scientist about he had designed the navigation system that was used in Concord during the wartime. And he was suing the government that he ought to be paid for using his invention. And, you know, naturally, it didn't work because, as the, as the people pointed out, if he'd given in and won, there'd be a hell of a lot of people from the first, Second World War wanting to sue the government. So, um, but I heard he's alive and I got to know, I, I got to visit him and, um, and then went to his funeral and met the Kimbo Kiff people. And uh, in fact, um, there is a museum in London, I think, which got quite a lot of their material now. So my parents, they weren't particularly religious. Um, I wasn't baptized, which is fairly unusual, um, but they did have this sort of sense of, and the world could be a better place. And I think that uh, that probably fed into my interest in other ideas and the occult. And I'm also curious about your educational background. You said mm. Clifford and then Cambridge, where I believe you read mathematics. Yes. Um, and at, at Clifton, yeah, I did maths and higher maths as a sort of my A-levels. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually it's again, it's something that made quite an impression on me because um people 
somehow assume that maths would be very scientific and very skeptical. But the way I've come to see it is that religion and science are very good at telling you what you can't do. Religion from a moral point of view, you know, thou shalt not. Science from saying you can't do that, that's impossible, or you know, it doesn't exist. But I remember when our maths teacher, well, we had two, but the main maths teacher, came in one morning and wrote up on the board, let I, little I, be such that I squared equals minus one. And we absolutely revolted against it. We said, you can't have that. There isn't a square root of minus one. You know, it's fundamental to the maths we've been doing. If you do a, a calculation, you end up with something squared equals minus number. You know, you've got it wrong because um, there is no such thing. And we argued with him for about half an hour of a three-quarter hour lesson until he said, well, look, whether it exists or not, let's see what happens if we just assume I squared, there's this thing called I, which when you square it, you get minus one. And we'll do algebra with it. So, you know, A plus IB, and you multiply it, you square it, and you do things with it. And it worked. Um, now, it worked, but was it absolute nonsense? Well, what you find out is not only does it work in itself, it's a working system, but actually, uh, <laughs> fundamental uh, physics like um, electricity and atomic physics depend on using this negative, you know, I, the, 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 and see it as another dimension or something. Um, so, to me, that was very similar to uh, magical thinking. You know, there's something you're told is impossible. And you say, yeah, but what if it, what if it works? Yeah, well, let's try it. And I think of the example of, you know, the, the Findhorn people uh, got remarkable good results in their gardening by working with the fairies or the devas, they call them. Now, if I said that to a skeptic, he would say, that's ridiculous. Fairies don't exist. You know, there's nothing there. But if you say, how would I do it? If fairies did exist, how would I work with them? Now, I wouldn't expect them to talk to me in sort of Oxford, Oxford English. You know? <laughs> um, I can't see them, you know, unless you're very psychic. Um, I, I've never seen a fairy, but I assume they're sort of around us you know, in some invisible way. How could you talk to them? And really, you experiment. Um, uh, I want to plant plant this this plant somewhere in the garden. I'll ask the plant, where would you like to be planted? And I'll sort of go around the garden um, until my feelings change. Ah, is this where you'd like to be planted? And I get a sort of warm glow or something, you know, it'd be different for different people. And so you start working like that. And um, I found I got pretty good results. When I say pretty good, I mean probably comparable as if I'd read up all the books in the science and done it very scientifically. I got good results, much better than I was getting. So I saw pure maths, that is. I mean, applied maths is really based as a sort of using physics ideas on that. But pure maths is very often a question of saying, let's, let's, let's find something that's impossible, like two parallel lines that meet. Um, and you build a system on it. 
And then marvelous, you find that actually it has relevance to the physical world in a mysterious way. So, yeah, I, I found that mathematical thinking and magical thinking had certain things in common. They were equally abstract and mysterious to other people, but um, they worked for me. And mathematics is a lot about uh, thought experiments. I recently, someone showed me a paper that he wanted me to comment on. I, I didn't in the end, but it was a paper by a physicist uh, denouncing Einstein's theory of relativity. And he said, you know, it's bunk. Newton mechanics explains things just as well as he does. And the problem with Einstein is he is, wasn't a physicist. He was only a mathematician. And I love that, only a mathematician. Um, so all his ideas are basically thought experiments, and they have no relation to the real world. And I thought, well, I could really identify with that. You know, it's, um, and I know that there have been several anecdotes about how the pure mathematicians um, can be seen as a bit weird in academia. Uh, you know, there was one person who visited a high table in Cambridge. He wrote this up and um, he said he couldn't communicate with a certain group of people. And he asked the, the um, provost or whatever. And he said, oh, they're the mathematicians. We don't speak to them. <laughs> and there's something of that, you know. Um, I, I did maths at Cambridge, pure maths. And um, I stayed on because I didn't know what I wanted to do to do a diploma of education. And one of the things I did was you write a, a dissertation. Now, you see, I, I'd never done the normal academic things of writing pieces and, and essays and things like that. So I wrote a dissertation on um, initiation and education. I thought, this is interesting, you know, initiation rituals, things like that. How does it relate to education as we know it? And I went to the university library and I searched and searched because I thought we must get a few examples of books I could quote. And all I found was one footnote in one book about anthropology, which said, initiation, this has interesting ramifications for educational theory. So that was the only, so I, I wrote up my article. And when I took it to, the, um, to be discussed, the director of studies or wherever it was, the tutor, said, um, I'm afraid I can't accept your, your dissertation because it's not done in academic style at all. I didn't know what is academic style. You know, He said, well, you haven't got references. And I explained, and um, it's not sort of formatted right. The language is wrong. And I realized long time later that I was writing thought experiments. And you see, if I write a mathematical equation and you get down to three X equals six, next line X equals two. Now to be respectively academic, they would want three X equals six as um, uh, Bertram Russell says on page so-and-so, 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 this means that X equals two, um, uh, but or else um, using this sort of um, Pinker formula to say, 
a thousand people in a test done by the MIT were asked if 3x6 equals 2, and 99, 999 of them agreed, you know, so that justifies it. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, if 3x equals 6, if, if three of these boxes weigh six kilograms, then one of them would weigh two. I mean, you know, either you're with me or you're not. And um, so I realized that uh, there's a definitely is a sort of gulf between how one might express something mathematically and how it should be written up to be academically respectable. And um, so I think that's part of the reason why my books never found a publisher in the ordinary sense of the word, because, you know, book on magic. Okay, if it was, if it really was a sex equals black magician exposed, okay, that's one audience. But if it's a serious book, um, they'll say, yeah, but where are the references? You know, who are you quoting? Where's the bibliography and all that? And I've tended not to do that. My approach is uh, say, I, what if things were like this? What if there is a um, uh, another dimension? Or what if um, fairies might exist? How might we test it or how might we work with it? So, yeah, that's um, part of the thing of being a mathematician how it helped me to explore the world of magic. I am curious what your thoughts were about initiation and its implications in terms of education. Do you recall much of what you, you, you were thinking in those days about that? Um, I was interested in the sort of formal thing of growing up. And I know in the Steiner anthroposophists, they have a theory of the first seven years, the next seven years, the next seven years. And um, I think they put it in terms of, um, you know, the astral, the etheric, um, and your sort of the different bodies which you're training. Um, I think I did refer to that idea. Uh, but generally, I was interested in the thing of, of when you become an adult, become a man or become a woman, um, and uh, what you go through in that transition. And one of the things which um, actually has been useful to me later in life when I was sort of got more involved with initiation proper, um, I realized that for some people, and this is rather sort of the bragging occultists, you know, they say, I'm a sixth degree something or other, as though that was a great mark of honor you know you're only five i'm six degree and i i said that and i this came from that uh, initiation means beginning it's a launching thing an initiation so when you come to uh to be initiated to the sixth degree it doesn't mean you've achieved something it means you've started something you've been given the tools or mental maps to learn about the sixth level. And so to go around saying, oh, now I'm at six degrees is a load of rubbish. You know, you go back and say, I master the fifth degree. That's why I'm at six degree. But people tend to sort of, you know, brag that they've reached a certain level. And it was interesting because in South Africa, of course, there's a strong tradition um, of initiation into adulthood. And um, uh, my, um, we're godparents to one family, or you know, um, godparents to two kids. 
and they went through their initiation and I was talking to the father and I told him this, you know, that um, we too have initiations in England, much, much rarer, but it does happen. And that as far as I was concerned, initiation is not something, an achievement, it's be a door opened to another level. And he said, that's absolutely right. So that's how they see it, you know? So I think it's um, actually, that is the more general view of what it means initiation it's a series of steps where you are led to the door the portal of the next level what sort of initiations are you thinking of when you say we have them in england and but they're rarer what were you thinking of i was thinking of you know things like uh, masonic um oto uh i suppose there are informal initiations i think some they, we don't do that so much in england but i think in america you know they they like to initiate people into into these um i don't know what they call them but you know sort of phi kappa what's it you know um uh right. and they have rituals things the certain amount of that um uh it certainly existed in certain industries and crafts and i remember i mean i call my publishing house the mouse that spins and people say what's that come from well apparently in the lancashire cotton industry if you came in as apprentice, you would be not exactly tortured, but you know, you'd you would have to go through an initiation ritual. And one of the things they'd give you nonsense riddles. And the thing was, why is a mouse that spins? And the answer is the higher it flies, the fewer. And apparently it's a reference to part of the machinery. Um, is a sort of governor or something that spins and then it goes up and up and up and up. And I don't know exactly, but that's where it's supposed to have come from, an initiated ritual for um, apprentices. So I think sort of at a fairly informal level, uh, there's a certain amount of that. And then, of course, there's the gang thing, you know, that um, as children, I remember um, I just went to the village school, you know, and a few village kids um got together to form a sort of bloodly death gang, you know, <laughs> secret passwords and all that. And we had a, um, a platform up in a tree, buried in a tree. You couldn't see it where we'd meet. And we'd have sort of passwords to get in, you know, and, and things you had to do. So I think it's quite a natural instinct to um, devise these initiations. And you could actually look at um, going up a hierarchy like the civil service and see it in terms of initiatory function but um yeah i mean but when i was saying we have a, a few i did mean things like masonic and um oto and uh those sort of initiations when would you consider things like qualifying as a doctor or lawyer or getting a phd or something would you consider those to be initiations or do they, or do they lack some sort of key ingredients in your view I think those are the reasons why people think that achieving the initiation, you've got there. You know, to become a doctor, you actually have to go through the many years of training and show a certain standard. So it is that is um uh that begins to separate it from the traditional idea of initiation, you know, where you're just the doors be open to you. And I think that's probably why 
people think in uh, the way they do, you know, that um, being a sixth degree is a real achievement rather than you're starting to learn something. Um, so I think if I was going back and writing my thing about initiation education, I would certainly draw a parallel there, but um, it's taken on a different meaning. I suppose it's to do with meritocracy. It is now a stamp of achievement in those cases. Um, though I'm sure many wise surgeons will say, you know, um, my learning began once I started to actually um, practice. You know? So I think there is a fundamental truth in that, that um, initiation takes you to a new level. Um, but we've made it into an achievement in itself. Yeah, very interesting indeed. So at that time period, when you were becoming very interested in, in the occult, mm. I wonder, you know, there's aspects of the occult that are, perhaps should we say, th theoretical, one can become mm. a, a scholar of the occult and, and not mm. do any, any um, workings of any type or mm. even, even a fundamental way, but mm. knowing a lot about its about its history, perhaps, and its various systems and so on. Mm. Or one could become practicing occultist. I'm wondering mm. what what was your balance in those days? Mm. Now, living in the deep country and being out of touch, um, and perhaps it's by nature, I wasn't a great joiner. If I was in the city and you know I could um, take a one shilling bus fare to a <laughs> temple or something, I might have joined. I don't know, but in the country. Um, I was introduced to you know, the Gareth Knight people, and they did have a temple which I could have driven to once I learned to drive. But um, it was all seemed rather distant, and it wasn't really till I, uh, later in life when I was able to drive to OTO meetings and things like that that I joined up. So I was on my own. Now, I did a bit of sort of folk, folk magic. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't really till later in life that I actually was joined movements or um, I think it almost started in the time of early chaos magic. There was a group in London, we called ourselves the Free Spirit. And um, uh, we were experimenting. We, we had formal rituals you know, with, a, with an opening ceremony, which was a very beautiful one written by a classicist who um, wrote this, the words of it and everything. And what we typically do was have the formal opening and then um, uh, we'd have a format, which on the whole, each person, because we lived in different places and all that, and we just come together, each person would make a contribution. So for instance, um, one was, we're going to do a ritual about the underworld. And so we had the formal opening that each person brought something of their own into it. I know it might be an incense maker who say, I've made this underworld incense, which we're going to burn and breathe it in. Um, another person may say, I've written this sort of hymn to the underworld, which I'm going to read out. And I wrote a little sort of play, I mean, called a ritual rather than a play, of um, myself and Hades and the interaction between them. And we acted, we, you know, we read our scripts, we acted out between us. And um, 
The interesting thing, and I think it's very typical, people would find this, the watch could be very fragmented, you know, different people from different backgrounds coming in and making a contribution. It was always to be remarkable how it all hung together. You know, you would think it would just be sort of, okay, we stop that, now we do the next bit. But actually the whole thing sort of molded together in a very interesting way, which is the sort of thing that I find very interesting about practicing magic, you know, the way it, it gels and, and melds together when in practice. So that was the sort of thing that um, I did a lot of before um, formally becoming you know, an OTO member and, and doing the OTO rituals. Yeah, so apart then the rest of it early on in the early 60s, it was more discussing and meeting and comparing books and things like that. You know, it was it was, as you say, more theoretical, hmm. a way of looking at the world. I think that's it's probably inspires us up me. You know, we were looking at the world in a different way and uh learning from that. Hmm. And was that culture mixed in at all with the psychedelic culture of that period or music culture of that period yes yeah it was that was like you could say like oil on the um on the cogs because if the 50s culture had gone on and we'd be constantly seen as nothing but cranks and loonies you know um but it was that lovely feeling by the mid 60s that the world is opening up you know the beatniks were telling us about zen you know and i which fitted in with my belief in taoism and all that and my 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 love of that way of thinking um and then um uh psychedelic experience people seeing the world see sort of like a whole other world behind the world and all those things timothy leary uh it was a very exciting time for me and um I had a feeling that you know I was part of that wavefront, uh, and um, my hair, my hair is very fine and wispy, so it didn't didn't go long very very well. So I, I didn't get very long hair, but um, I certainly was right up there with the spirit of it. Um, and did psychedelics play a part in your own explorations? Only quite a bit later. Um, oh, that guy who introduced me to Ted Bryant actually did give me hashish i know at the age of 10 or something like that um and so i had a taste of the otherness when i was at university oh yes he actually someone else he introduced us to a friend of his was a person called um dr joyce martin and she was one of the few people in the 60s who was using lsd as a diagnostic to you know um, for psychological purposes she would regress people under lsd to their to their earliest memories and i remember saying to my parents oh i want to try that and they said no you're too young you haven't got a past to go back to yet so um, i was a member of the family wasn't allowed to do it but when i got to you to school um i remember i heard that morning glory seeds have got lsd in them now, I'm a very cautious, controlled, step-by-step -step person. Well, sun is in Aries, so that's wild. But my rising sign is Capricorn, which is very sort of, you know, um, Saturnian and all that. So I read about this and I wanted to do it. You know, oh, I must have this. And so uh, I cautiously took half a seed, <laughs> uh, a whole seed, 
and I began to have wonderful, you know, the college courtyard was a place with beautiful architecture. Everything was soaring columns of stone and everything like that. You know, I saw meaning and, and beauty in, in all the school. And I thought, well, this is terrific. And then, of course, a month or two later, I read that you need about 60 before you get anywhere with it. I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I did it on the cheap, as it were. Um, so, I mean, basically, I'd opened myself up. But, <laughs> and so many years later, when um, uh, I was offered the chance of taking psilocybin mushrooms. I I read, I got a little booklet about it and it's described it in a lovely way. It said, you know, they've got under the ground, there's these tiny little mushrooms under the ground, there's this network of fibers. And it's, it's they said it's it's so like the network in the brain of, of you know, this is, and so it's as if the, yeah, so it isn't just one single mushroom with a root. It's this huge area of network. And he said, it's like there's a brain under the ground that's trying to communicate with us. And it's giving us these mushrooms to communicate. So when I, well, first of all, the person who was giving to me said, what would you like to do? You'd like to go to a party, go out for a drive? And I said, no, I want to be in my own house, basically meditating and feeling the change. <clears throat> and this is a thing which is quite fundamental to me. Um, I didn't want a trip that would blow my mind and take me somewhere else. And I wouldn't know where, how I got there. I wanted to, as it were, walk there, go across the bridge, find this other world, and then walk back. And I draw the comparison, you know, you can get in an aeroplane and fly to Bali, have an amazing experience. You fly back, you think it's all like a dream, you know, so far away. Was that really, did that really happen? And I think a lot of um, magical writing does something rather like that. You open the book and it takes you to another world, you know. Um, suddenly, there you are in a world of fairies and devas and many planes of existence and all that type of thing. You know, it's another world. You shut the book and you're back in your humdrum life. Um, and I always try to instead leave a door open. You know, you may think life is just like this, but look, open the door. There's something out there beyond. And, and to encourage people to explore beyond the ordinary and find in very simple things signs that there's something else there and to sort of lead you on the way. And I say, you know, you can get to the faraway places that way, but at least you can relate them to the existence you have. And so it was like that when I took the psilocybin, I just meditated and said, what is happening to me? And the first thing I noticed was indigestion. <laughs> and I remembered as a child, I used to have indigestion and I would have visions, you know, in my indigestion. And that was actually what was beginning to happen. Things began to look weird and interesting. And basically, over the next few hours, I saw every psychedelic poster that had ever been made, you know, flowing colors and things like that. And the wonderful thing with psilocybin, you can 
blink and screw your eyes and it goes back to normal. And then you relax. And <laughs> all the stuff begins up again. And the other thing that amused me was it inverted the senses. Um, after a while, the person I was with said, should we put on a record? And we put on, there was a guy called Malachi who made a very, very hippie record, which was basically was a Jew's harp, and a humming sound. That was all there was to it, you know. And I played it and wow, it was so powerful. It blew my mind, incredible. Oh, oh. And, then, and then he put on after that the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, which is a really thundering blues band. And it was so subtle. I hadn't realized what beautiful, delicate music it was. You know? So there was this lovely sort of version. I remember stroking our furry cat and it felt like a Brillo pad. You know? <laughs> so, um, now the thing was, I was living, at that point, I was really fed up. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing because I had a nine to five job that was so boring that I began to dread Friday because it brought me closer to Monday. I mean, how bad could you get? Um, but this was a Saturday. And I realized at the end of the day, Oh, yes, you see, I could never enjoy a holiday because, OK, you take a week somewhere nice. And I'm always thinking five days, four days, three days. So I couldn't really enjoy it. But at the end of that Saturday and the next day, I realized I'd had a holiday. I'd been completely. I got somewhere completely different. And felt beautifully free. Now, the wonderful thing was um, that. Instead of that ruining my ordinary life, you know, why can't it always be like that? Knowing that it's possible to do that was transformative for me. It told me that however boring my life may seem, there is another thing behind it, another possibility. Um, it's just that I'm not seeing it in everyday life. And so uh, that one day's experience was actually very valuable for me. Um, you could say you know, it was life-changing. and uh, So I never really, I had a few things later, but you know, I never really felt compelled to do that as an escape because it wasn't an escape for me. It was a, a coming home, if you like, you know, seeing how things really are. And were you meditating during your university years or after that? I'm thinking of um, mm. your influences, mm. Alistair Crowley and Austin Spare, mm. and they're associated not only with ideas about mm. reality and how things work, but also with practices. Yes. Very yes. I, wonder, I wonder, did you take mm. up any of those? Did you begin, or at what point did you begin to cultivate mm. a sort of personal practice? Was it, was it yes. with the RTO beforehand? Um, let me think. The When I was late 60s, I was reading people like, W.E. Butler. There were some instructions of meditating in that, uh, you know, sitting still, breathing in a particular way, um, clearing your mind and everything. And um, I did practice that. Now, I don't have diaries from as long ago as that. I've kept a diary since about 1970 onwards. Um, so I don't know quite how much I was doing it. I know I got interested in yoga at the age of 
12, I think it was, um, you know, Pantajali, I read, and, and teach, us, teach Yourself Yoga and Paul Brunton, those sort of books. You know? And so I, I was practicing that. I don't think I was very consistent. Um, sort of thing, you know, you do it in the holidays. When you get back to school, you can't find time to do it. It was that sort of um, rather dilettante thing for me. Um, there was something I did instinctively for myself, which looking back, people would say it's a meditation. I was um, considered a very dreamy kid. <laughs> people called me transite because they said, you're always in a trance. And this annoyed me. You know, I'm not in a trance. And so I deliberately cultivated a very intense awareness of what's around me. Um, you know, uh, I pick something up and I'd be aware of its texture and all that. I'd be aware, try to be aware at the same time of the weather, the feelings, how my body is and all that. And I think it's what people now call mindfulness is what I was practicing. And so I did that so consistently that actually my mind became very silent. I was so much aware of what's around. Very little was going, thinking was going on. And um, so when people still say you're very dreamy, I thought, no, I'm not. I'm more here than, you, than any of you are. Your hairs are buzzing with thoughts, things like that. I'm right here in the moment. And of course, uh, that would be me as a teenager. And then what happens is, typical, I think, of a teenager, I fell madly in love with a beautiful Swedish girl. And she was a Beatles fan. And she was constantly singing Beatles pop songs. And her head was just you know, a fluff of pop songs and this and the other. I fell madly in love with her. And there was my head so quiet that I had to sort of learn how I could fill my head with, with pop songs and things to try to get to her state of excellence. And I, I had this whole theory, I called it neo-hip and neo-hep, just to myself. I didn't tell anyone else this. You know, two different ways, the, the cool, rational, absolutely there feeling and the going with the flow feeling. And the funny thing was that actually the going with the flow head full of noise worked better in exams. If I had a maths exam, you might think you want to be absolutely there, but actually there was so little thinking. Whereas if I threw myself into the exam in a frenzy, you know, oh my God, how much time I got left? Oh, blimey, that's it. Um, I, I got much better results. So I was exploring and um, that was rather paradoxical for me. That was an example of really the purest meditation I was practicing, but I wasn't, thinking of it as practicing anything. It was just me trying to find a way of living, which um, which worked for me. Later, uh, you know, over the years, I might, I did Tai Chi for quite a few years um, when I was in Winchester. Again, the conditions sometimes are right. You know, I had just the right place to do it. And um, there was a teacher. And so I learned the long form Yang and um, did that for a long time until I moved to a place where it wasn't easy to do and like that. And I was very busy doing other things. So there's sort of wave motion of doing things for a while. I'm about to move house now and um, I'm looking forward 
to having more open space um, for doing things like that. And I, I think I will. I'll get back into quite a few practices which are not practical now. Such as Tai Chi. Yes, yeah. I think I'll get I'll, I'll get back to that certainly, mm. which is quite a challenge because I've had um, hip operations and knee operations, and so that sense of balance is going to be a very good test for me to see if I can get that back. I might fail. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> I wonder if we might talk a bit about the OTO, and that's an interesting time to become involved in it. This sort of reconstruction mm. or revival at yes, that time. Yes. What can you say about about that period and about the work that was done and the work mm. that you were involved in there? It was an interesting time because, uh, do you know of Gerald Suster? Actually, he was quite important to me because uh, when I had just written SSOTBME and was trying to find people who might champion it or, you know, like it or whatever, I found a little booklet of... Um, an organization in North London, Franklin School, they called it, which had lectures on things like the tarot and, and things like that. And I thought, well, this looks interesting. It's the right sort of level. And one of the lecturers, a guy called Gerald Suster, who'd been at, I think, King's College, Cambridge. And he was talking about the tarot. And I thought, now that's interesting. Um, uh, I'll get in contact with him and give him a copy of my book. And so I did that. I went down, met him, and you know, we chatted a bit. And I gave him my book and said, I hope you find this interesting. And he came back. He really liked it. And actually, he gave me this phrase when he wrote about it, the book that put the magic back in magic. Now, that was very important to me because I was afraid I'd written a rather theoretical book. Um, you know, uh, it didn't have how to do spells or anything like that in it. But what I'd done, um, you see, in the, the people who, the magic that had survived in the very skeptical 50s was the magic which was really a form of extended psychology. Diane Fortune, Gareth Knight, W.E. Butler. Um, you mentally go on these path workings and things like that, you know. Um, it's a psychological exploration. Uh, used to contribute to your real life. Now, what I was saying in that book, SSOTBME, was that I go along with that, but don't underestimate how much a different way of looking at the world actually means you perceive it differently. In other words, you'll experience it differently. So it doesn't just, you know, I've, I've done the inner planes of this, that, and the other, and I come back and I'm back in the same old world. If you really get into that, it'll transform your experience of the world. You'll begin to see things which you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Now, so in other words, that distinction between getting results and just having a psychological trip, that's what Gerald meant. I'd put the magic back in magic because I've shown that Magic, as many people understood it, as a sort of different psychological practice, actually did things, had effects. And that was very important for the nascent um, chaos magic current, because they came up with what they called results magic, magic to actually make things happen, which was, you know, 
rather radical at the time. <laughs> People thought of it as a sort of you know extension of yoga or something like that, but oh no, it's some results magic. So yeah, so I was very grateful to, um, well, I've diverged a bit, I'm afraid, but he, I kept up with him and we used to have very intellectual meetings in my garden um, and invite other people like Stephen Skinner. And we'd talk about, you know, magic and, and, uh, and have lectures, organized lectures and things. And then he decided to found an essay club. You always like the idea of a sort of, he said, collegiate atmosphere, you know, getting people like um, uh, Dick Goodrick Clark and, um, uh, oh dear, who was the guy who wrote? Francis King. And um, yeah, people who'd written quite good academic books, Bob Gilbert on, on the subject, and people who practice magic, bringing them together and having an essay and a discussion in an upper room of a pub. So he founded this thing, which um, became called the Society because we couldn't think of a name for it. So it was just the Society. And uh, one of the meetings we held after a few years was a guy called David Rietti turned up and he announced, I'm thinking of reviving, the OTO is, is not in England at present or in, in Britain. I'm thinking of reviving it in Britain. Uh, Anyone who's interested, here are my contact details. Now, I was interested, naturally. So I gave my contact details. But as I say, I'm not much of a joiner. So I never thought I was going to, you know, I, I, I'm glad to support what, something. I didn't think I wanted to get in something as formal as that. But um, so he decided to hold a meeting of those who wanted. And there were three of us in the meeting. Um, I think it was Clive Harper, him and myself. And you need three people to start uh, a chapter or whatever it is. Um, uh, so he would be the, I can't remember the, the name, the, the title in charge. Clive Harper would be the um, secretary. No, I used to be the secretary. I can't remember. Anyway, the three people that were needed, the three posts, um, we fitted it. So, oh, Lord, here am I. I'm going to have to come up to London because I'm living in Winchester. I have to come up to London and have regular meetings. You know. um, but I did it. Uh, I was pretty incompetent, but I was good in the rituals. I always was. I always brought rituals to life in a very good way. So, you know, I, I made a valuable contribution, but it certainly was to the secretary or whatever I was supposed to be. Um, oh, yeah. The Clive would be the accountant, I think, or whatever it is, you know, the treasurer um yes yeah, so i think i was secretary god i must be useless i remember at one time gerald came to me and he said do you know what david rietti said um we were going to give you i get you to do something david rietti said lionel snell couldn't hold a piss up in a brewery and instead of being shocked and angry i said he's very perceptive i'm glad we got a perceptive person like that <laughs> he's dead right <laughs> so um yeah, it was a sort of a funny way to start, but uh, we got it off the ground and um, we held some wonderful initiation rituals um, in York and um, in various towns around the country. And so I found myself sort of drawn into a movement that I probably would have volunteered for because I was much more in the spirit of the chaos magic, you know, doing things a new way. New inventive way 
Um, and I found the whole OTO thing very formal for me. You know, dear sir and brother and all this sort of stuff uh, doesn't come naturally to me. Uh, but when I held rituals for the IOT in um, Austria, you know, they used to do things on a grand scale. They'd hire a complete castle for a fortnight and, and do marvelous things. Um, some of the rituals I did, I incorporated some of the formal elements and rituals of Philema, uh, like banishing rituals and things, and used them as a sort of matrix for a chaos um, performance inside that. And many people said that was very powerful. Because after a while, the trouble with chaos magic, anything goes, means that it tends to become sort of uh, everyone going around in a circle, going invoke, 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 invoke sort of thing and chanting. Um, and then what? Oh, we go a bit wild, you know. Um, but given a slightly tight formal structure in which something breaks out, actually that was inspired by, I did hold a ritual at Cambridge one of the things that really impressed me that I read in Magic and Theory and Practice at the beginning stages of me getting to know Crowley, one of the things that made a big impression on me was what he says in Magic and Theory and Practice about dramatic rituals. He talked about different types of rituals, but dramatic is a chapter on dramatic rituals. And this is a ritual which is a very formal performance. You know, with different characters, with different robes and clothes and things like that. And everyone does what they're supposed to do. And he says it should build up to a climax, but only one person knows what that climax is, and that's the main performer or the, you know, the, the main priest or whatever. And so it's a surprise to everyone else. They don't know quite, it's all very powerful, but they're building up to something and they don't know what's supposed to come at the end. And so you have this climax, and then you can have a, a free form you know, however people react to that climax, they could go mad or do whatever. Um, now, I thought that's a very powerful idea. And actually, when I was at Emmanuel College, I decided to hold a ritual. Now, at the time, there was a bit of a Dada revival, the idea of a happening, you know, happening where sort of People do crazy things and have gas stoves on their heads and things like that and dress up funny and do daft stuff. And uh, it was an artistic thing, you know, and I went to a happening with Jean-Jacques Lebel in London and so on and so forth. And they decided to hold a happening in Cambridge. And I went along and it was quite good, but uh, as you would expect in Cambridge or a university, there were the people performing on stage and then there were people in the audience saying, oh, yeah, I think Max Ernst did that in 1922, didn't he? In other words, they weren't really getting into the spirit of it. So I thought, oh, I could do better than that. I put an advertisement in the college, in the university newspaper, um, something on the lines of, I'm looking for people who are interested in the occult to explore it, um, I can't remember how I put it, but anyway, to hold a ritual, to organize a ritual together. And um, 
Very few people answered. And funny enough, of course, one of them was a, a newspaper reporter who was wildly excited, hoping we'd go to have a satanic ritual and offered me a free use of a cottage in the country and all sorts of things, <laughs> basically, if I gave him sole rights. And I said, no, 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 we're not ready for that. Um, uh, but I organized a ritual along those lines where we had a very formal sort of like an initiation at the beginning. And I made it clear that everyone, we they had their gowns turned around and I made black tissue paper masks. So everyone was anonymous. Now I explained to them, the reason I'm doing this is that no one need be at all self-conscious about what they're doing. You know, we're all totally anonymous. We just all look the same. And um, so I wanted to get over that thing of, oh, you know, he's, he's, he's overperforming or, you know, he's been too clever on that something. So I had an initiation and then I went to another room where a very formal sort of, it was based on the dying king sort of symbolism. And then we went back and well, the wonderful thing of doing this in a Cambridge college, in a manual in particular, is I could go to the kitchens and say, uh, I need a silver chalice. Um, I need a great big platter and I need a salmon, cooked salmon. How big? Well, you know, something like this. <laughs> so, uh, um, so I got all these sort of ritual implements, things like that. And, well, salmon. I was eating salmon with my friends for the rest of the week, you know, um, for, for this little ritual sacrifice meal afterwards. Um, and uh, all this stuff. And I mean, visually, it was absolutely stunning. Um, and uh, the thing that fascinated me, typical college stuff, you know, the term ended and I never saw the other people. And then the next term, I met one of them. And I said, how did that ritual go for you? And he said, it was incredibly powerful. And I, I said, well, you know, I explained this as really just an artistic experiment. Um, you know, I wasn't, it doesn't my nature to put on a great act, you know, and say, we're all going to meet at midnight and I'm, I'm a passing down knowledge from the past or something. I said, look, we're getting together to try this out, you know, a, a sort of happening, which is, experimental and he said yeah yeah you were you were very open with us and you made it quite clear that there's nothing weird and you know it's all just an artistic experiment but he said when we were all anonymous in our black outfits um everyone was thinking the same as me he seemed to be very open about this very rational but what's behind it so a tremendous tension built up in each person thinking, you know, what have I let myself in for? What is this? And that huge tension made, like a Crowley thing, a very dramatic ritual. It was a powerful experience for all of them. And you know, at the end of the day, I was in tears by, when I went back at myself because I thought it was a terrible flop, you know, I, 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 had I tried to... Um, the person who played the sacrifice king, um, he was very keen that things should be new and modern. But when we discussed it afterwards, he said, there's something in this about uh, going back to the roots 
of ritual and the dying king symbolism. And actually, he later committed suicide, um, taking an overdose of LSD, turning on the gas taps and writing a commentary on his dying. And um, that's the sort of thing that <laughs> gets magic a bad reputation. And, um, you know, I don't really know. Uh, he found it a very positive experience, but, uh, you know, what did it make him do? Uh, was I responsible for that? Some people would sort of go crazy um, exploring things, which for me are explorations. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, what I wanted to say is that idea of the dramatic ritual and the having a, a structure which gives you the tension and then letting it burst open um, was very fundamental. And uh, that was what came up again when I did those chaos magic rituals, you know, that they they realized that this was something powerful. That was the time when the chaos people were saying, oh, you know, forget all that Crowley nonsense. That's all old hat and everything. But actually it was too diffuse. It was beginning to get to be um, all doing the same thing all the time. And I had produced a structure which they found challenging. What do you mean when you said that some people go mad exploring things that you consider to be explorations? Mm. Um, that thing, that basic idea of being very aware and conscious. And uh, I don't like using the term mindfulness because then I'm using a jargon which might mean something specific to some people. But when I write uh, the book How to See Fairies, I actually begin with that because so much of what we witness an experience is what we're told we can witness. You know, go walking in the woods. It might be called fairy woods. You go walking woods, you don't see any fairies. Fair enough, there are no fairies. But um, if you become totally aware of everything your senses gives you, you notice things which you wouldn't normally notice. Like, um, you see things, yes. Yeah, we're allowed to see things. You're allowed to smell the pine woods. Mm -hmm. um, but as you walk along one bit, it feels a bit creepy and you don't want to hang around there. But you're not allowed to have those feelings, so you forget them. You know, oh yeah, I didn't like that, but it's probably because it was a bit shady or something. Yeah, I didn't like it. But if you're practicing this intense awareness, that feeling of it's a bit creepy here is just as real as all the other feelings, which are in their own way subjective. I like the smell of the pine woods, this and the other. I didn't like that bit of the path. It felt peculiar. So um, you begin to notice things and become sensitive to things, which our culture says you're not supposed to notice. Now, um, Various things can happen at that point. For some people, let's, it's easiest to give the example of a religious person. Um, you don't notice these things because they are demonic. They're not godly. 
So if you felt that creepiness as you went along that path, it's probably because there's a, something evil there. And you're on a sort of, to be a bit of a slippery slope, you know, because evil is actually rather fascinating. You know, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to sort of go there at midnight to experience it, or what are you going to do? Um, you could go downhill on, on that sort of thing. Or if something was very rewarding and exciting, you could get addicted to that. But if you're really exploring, interested in what you're perceiving, um, which for me is more like a real magician, you know, uh, then that gives you quite a bit of protection from it because you know that the, what you're experiencing, you're not supposed to experience it. So there is this safe world you can step back into and say, I won't go there again. Um, you feel, like me taking the drug and wanting to walk towards the experience rather than fall into it. Um, you, you're relating what you experience to the ordinary world. You're connecting them. And if you don't have that sense of discipline or security, you can go overboard with it. Um, it's either becomes so evil and fascinating that you can't stop yourself, or else it's so alluring, you know, that um, you want more and more and more. And uh, yeah, I've known people, I've met some pretty weird people who've, um, I would say, have gone over the top in that way. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think there's a, there's a protection in that. The other thing is um, uh, about magic, a lot of people see it in terms of power. You see, as I said, that religion and science tell, tell you what you can't do, or what you must do in the case of religion and, and what you can't do in the case of science but magic is prepared to break those rules you can have a square root of minus one if you want to let's see if it works um now for some people the attraction is to gain power to do the impossible i want to do something impossible like a square root of minus one you know um, i want the power to do it now that, for many people, is what gets them into magic. I want the power of making the girl next door fall in love with me, or that I'm going to make money, you know, and things like that. But when I speak to people who've been doing magic for many years, like pagans, you know, at a pagan meeting or something, and I say that actually I spend more time celebrating magically, you know, like holding seasonal rituals and things like that, I notice quite a lot of people nod their heads that um, the other side of magic is the delight in exploring. And um, uh, you become stronger through exploring. And this is my idea that actually people think of power and strength as the same thing. But in a sense, they're complementary. People describe Putin as 
one of the strong men, you know, um, because he's, but actually I see was rather weak. He has the power over people, but as with, have with Adolf Hitler and um, Saddam Hussein and people, when you've got the biggest power, which is just to get rid of someone, you know, you've insulted me and that person will be killed and disposed of. When you've got that much power, people daren't tell you the truth. And you see the people becoming weaker. And that's what happened to Saddam Hussein. No one dared tell him that his army was useless. Um, you know, under, under, because that would be unpatriotic, you know. How dare you insult our wonderful Iranian um, uh, Iraqi army? Um, and that could be the end of your career. Uh, now, I think something similar has happened with Putin. And it certainly happened with Adolf Hitler. But he was a, he couldn't face the truth anymore because people didn't dare tell him. And I think that um, part of the interest of magic for me is going into experiences and getting an understanding of what lies behind it. Um, so if I'm having a, a really tough time you know, and I discover Pluto's going over my ascendant or something, I feel less inclined to try to do rituals to banish Pluto and more inclined to say, I get to explore this. I'm glad of the knowledge that Pluto is in on this and I got to read it up, all that sort of thing. Now I really want to see what it's doing to me. And um, I think that's quite a general rule about strength and power. I, I, I did a thing once for a while of um, cryotherapy, where you step into a cylinder and it's like something awful, like minus 60 degrees C or something. You're in liquid nitrogen, steam. And um, the moment you step into it, you're in a position of power because you're in the power to say, this is hell. I don't want to be here. I'm getting out. But if you stay, no, I'm going to stick it out. You give up your power to step out of it. You can become stronger from the experience. And I found that, you know, I enjoyed that. And it's, um, you think of powerful people like, you know, the um, Springboks rugby team, big, powerful men. And they surrender their power to a coach who might even be half their size. Um, and that couch will be shouting at them and saying, come on, come on, another 10 press-ups, another 10 press -ups. Now you've got to run up the field and they don't want to do it, but they've given their power to the coach and they become stronger for it. So I think that's, that's almost a sort of, um, uh, almost like a cosmic rule. Um, you could trade strength for power. Um, they are in a sense complementary. And so for me, magic is as much about uh, getting stronger to live, um, to have experiences and to survive them and learn ways of coping with them, which includes your know, meditation or something like that, um, is actually more interesting to me than to try to make the world the shape that I want it. Because actually, if you can shape the world to what you want, it's great fun, but it sours. Because if I suddenly won the um, lottery 
and I had all the money in the world. What would I do? I might buy a yacht, get a Lamborghini, and all these sort of things. Then I stepped back and now I've got everything. Um, you know, a lot of people at that stage become miserable or take to drugs or something like that um, because they've exercised them. I mean, one of the things about power is the real pleasure of power is giving it away. You know, I've got an amazingly powerful torch, but the real interest is to turn it on. And then, of course, it's giving away its power. I could sit on a million pounds, but the real excitement is spending it. In other words, power is actually at its best when you're giving it away or getting rid of it. Um, so, you know, this is a little bit paradoxical, but um, I discover these things through thinking magically, I would say, and, and I, it adds value to my life. That's fascinating indeed. So let's talk a bit about some of the ideas in SSOT. Oh, yes. BME. BME. <laughs> secrets of the sex secrets sex of the Black. secrets of the black magicians exposed yes it's actually a title of one of one of the um, chapters yeah. where i say you know so far you may get the impression that magic is pretty sensible so why do people write these books you know with titles like sex secrets of magic and then i sort of talk about um uh the love of demonizing magic um both to make it interesting and also to means you don't have to believe in it because it's rubbish. <laughs> Before we go there, actually, you're talking about um, the discipline uh, mm. to not get drawn away by these sorts of discoveries that one can begin to have, or these perceptual transformations and shifts and mm. things that one can begin to awaken. Mm. And I wonder if something in the way this sort of more ritual magic systems like OTO, for example, are, are designed, mm. um, some of the, the structures of them, some of the rituals like you mentioned, the, the lesser banishing ritual and that sort of thing. Mm. Mm. Um, are, do you think they're designed as anchors in a sense? Are they designed as safeguards? Or, I mean, or, or they're, they're, mm. they can also be criticized as straitjackets, can't they? Yes. As limits. So how do you see that interaction between particularly in the case of ritual magic, such as the OTO yes. and the and so on. Yes. I'm quite interested in the relationship between, well, as you might have gathered by now, structure and freedom. Um, I remember one time there was a conference of chaos magic conference. This must have been about mid to late half of the eight, 1980s. And uh, by that time, there was quite a room full of chaos magicians. You know, it had got a bit of a momentum. There were quite a few people there. And Pete Carroll was giving his uh, equations of magic um, type of lecture. And it was interesting because there was a bit of a division growing. Those who were saying, but we're chaos magicians. We didn't need all this intellectual stuff and all that, um, you know. Just go with the flow, feel it, fight it. No, don't fight it, feel it. <clears throat> and for me, the resolution of that was that, uh, particularly if you're fairly intelligent, um, you have an intellect that gets in the way. Um, you know, you see something in the dusk, which gives you the shivers down the spine and feels like a, a ghost. But you stare hard and, and blink and perhaps shine your torch and it's not there. Um, 
Now, um, so the conscious intellect banishes the magic. And that's its job. It's supposed to do that. It's supposed to protect us from weird and wonderful things. So you, you respect that. But um, uh, Pete was giving us all this sort of intellectual you know, equations of magic and the likelihood of, of something happening. And what I suggested was that many of us have got this rational um, approach, which is actually getting in the way of the magic. Now, what do you do when there's a guard dog? You give it a bone to chew. Now, I said, I think that there's value in giving your conscious mind, you know, your rational mind, a task to keep it busy. Um, and I think some of the very elaborate magical systems like Enochian and things like that, um, they give you a structure and complex things you've got to do. And I might even be radical and say, it isn't that that does the magic. It's the way it gets your conscious mind occupied so the magic can then happen. You know, it's like you've given the guard dog a bone to chew. And now you can slink in the magic and now slink fast and happen. And that may be fanciful, but I think there's something in that um, that uh, a banishing ritual is both a way of sort of literally clearing the air. You know, if you do it right, it does feel a bit safer and cleaner. Um, and having done that, it helps you to focus on what you actually want to happen. Um, I mean, to invent a simple example, uh, your ritual is all about winning love. And um, at the time, you're thinking about wanting to be rich. That's Jupiter. Well, Jupiter's all very well, and it goes on quite well with Venus. But um, actually, if you're really focused on Venus, you want to get rid of Jupiter. So you do a banishing ritual. And now you concentrate on the Venus aspect, you know, which is what the ritual is really about. So it, there is a focusing thing of banishing, um, even if you don't go the whole hog and think there are these evil spirits trying to get in. And you're... But an interesting thing about the Abram Lid operation, which I think Israel Gardi pointed out in, in, uh, in one of his books, um, is that there's no magic circle in the Abramelin operation. All the traditional elements you expect of a magic ritual, you draw the circle and you that keep you stand in that circle, you don't reach over the edge of it and like that. And then there's a triangle for the spirits to manifest. You don't have that in the Abramelin ritual. And um I think he said it, and I certainly was aware of that, that you spent six months really what you're doing is hardening yourself. It's like my thing of strength again. You're actually strengthening yourself so that if you do it right, uh, you don't need a, a circle because you are your own magic circle. You know, you've, and, um, and I think that uh, that really has been 
the way I see this magic, um, to say you, uh, you can have rituals and things that help, but the real protection can be what you have built up inside yourself. One time when, um, around about 1980, I went through the thing of making the four magical implements. Um, and I was very slow. It took me a year for each one. Which I'm not a great craftsman, but I really worked at it. And I had a strong feeling that I wanted a fifth element for ether. And I ended up with a clear crystal ball representing ether. But at that time, I had a dream which was very interesting to me. You know, sometimes a dream just seems so significant. And it was of a person who in my life had been a bit of a, a shadow figure, you know, um, slightly menacing, um, all that. And he gave me a little pendant, a gold pendant. Ooh, lovely. Um, on a chain around my neck. And there, there it is. And I looked at it and it, I was disappointed because actually it wasn't gold. It was rather cheapo painted with gold paint. Uh, and in fact, it's been to chip. It, the bits of it were missing and I could see it inside. It looked like glass. And so I scraped it all off. And I found it was a perfect diamond. And this seems so significant that I, you know, I was thinking about it for weeks afterwards. Now I realize the diamond is my birthstone as an Aries, and it's the hardest substance just about on earth. You know, it's um, incredibly hard and um, unbreakable. Um, well, of course, you can shatter it, but it's, it's the hardest substance on earth. And it's, uh, it's most valuable when it's utterly clear. In other words, when it looks totally empty. And what is its value then is because any light that goes through it broken into a beautiful colors and i thought that was a very symbolic thing for me because i'd done the abramelin operation and when you don't if you don't get a dramatic result you're sort of thrown into a silence and i think this is the fear that many people have of going inward is they're going to find nothing there and they think of that as a disaster rather than as a discovery of what links you to the universe, that purity of nothingness. And so there was this crystal, which scratched off the gold. You think, oh my God, there's nothing in there. It's just glass. When you scrape it all off, you realize it's a diamond. It's the strongest thing on earth. And it's really what it does to light that passes through. And so I decided this was symbolic, that I had found something indestructible inside myself and its value was the light that would be cast by it the light the colors that other people would see when light shone through it and um, that was a very strengthening thing for my magical experience because um, I think that the real vulnerability the fear of magic is that at heart, you won't be able to stand it. You know, there's something basically flawed of you and a demon is going to do that. But doing the Abramelin operation and then surviving it and uh, 
making this discovery that this dream suggested to me uh, was very empowering. Fascinating indeed, that Abramelin operation. Mm. The events of that have been recorded in the Abramelin <laughs> Abramelin Diaries. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know, I, I'm th I'm thinking I might have to petition you for a sequel, and mm. what I'm thinking is we could talk about the sorts of things you discuss in um, SSOTPME to do with what is magic and the four ways of thinking: magical, mm. religious, artistic, scientific, and how they interact. Mm. That's very fascinating indeed. Mm. Um, and then perhaps walk through the Abramelin. Mm. period and it's mm. and it's and its consequences mm. uh, unexpected consequences which you're hinting at there yeah uh, that would be very interesting and perhaps uh, so i might petition you for a sequel uh, with that sort of an arc to it and what yeah. i would like to ask you about seeing as we started with the biographical there's something else you talk about in well there are lots of things you talk about in, in ssot bme but one mm. of them is this idea of uh, cycles Personal oh, yes. cycle, personal mm. cycles, cycles of fashion, and mm. what you describe as even slower cycles, cycles of the mm. ages, and so mm. on. So, if I might quote you, you say, "We begin our lives as magical thinkers. By early childhood, we evolve into artistic thinking, mm. uh, pre-teen religious thinking, teenage mm. scientific thinking." Mm. And you say the cycle does not stop at adolescence. During the early 20s, we once more act out myths, the young man with the sports car, the newlyweds, etc., until the Saturn return and the approaching mm. age of 30 makes us once more seriously question our real purpose in life. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if you might talk a bit about those cycles in the personal, and then I'd like to ask you about the fashion, and, mm. and perhaps we could think about today as the past as well as today, and, and perhaps mm. what's coming with those models. Mm. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on these, first of all, this the level of personal cycles mm. and perhaps even can you continue the pattern beyond the 20s yeah. and 30s i'm mm. wondering if you've had any insights since about mm. how those cycles go go further oh yes actually i'm quite interested because uh this magical thinking is more notices cycles but from a scientific point of view cycles are not very they're out you know um they associated with delusion and um, things like that. You know, things happen randomly and advance. Time moves forward. And that goes right back to, oh God, who was it? Um, the Greek philosopher who said, you can never step into the same river twice. And what he meant, this was the very beginning of atom theory, that the river is made of atoms of water flowing. And even if they come back in the form of rain in that, they'll be rearranged. So next time you get into that river, it won't be the same river. The atoms will be different in different arrangements. And um, uh, now I could say, well, that's rubbish because every year we used to go and take a boat on, onto the River Thames in, in, <laughs> in England. Um, but of course, this argument that doesn't, the argument is, yeah, but it's a different River Thames. The water is not exactly the same as it was last time. And so there is this, you could, it's really looking at it in two different ways. Now, are they saying cycles don't exist? Well, astrologically, every 12 years, Jupiter comes back to its natal position. 
definitely does. How does that fit with the idea that actually it doesn't repeat? Well, the answer is, of course, that it doesn't, the orbit is not a two-dimensional space, it's a three-dimensional space. So every time it comes back at a slightly different angle and things like that. So theoretically, it will never come back exactly to the trillionth of a, of a centimeter to the same position. So really, um, this is another example of you look at the world in different ways, and you can either notice cycles, or you can say they don't exist. You can always prove that it wasn't actually a cycle. It wasn't exactly the same as before. Um, so which way do you want to live? And this is partly, this is a me thing, you know, different ways of looking at it gives you different experiences. Now, uh, actually, I, I would slightly qualify what you, what you, um, read to me because i say we start our life as magical thinkers actually an infant is a physicist the first thing you learn is repeatable experiments and the solidity of matter a baby reaches for the spoon picks it up and drops it reaches it picks it up and drops it he's learning the material universe certain things are solid and you can pick them up, you put them down and they're still there and you can pick them up again. And he's practicing repeatable experiments. And then he pushes it at the edge of the table and it drops to the ground. And that is another repeatable experiment. And it begins to produce, I would hardly call them explanations, but they're sort of scientific results. Why does the spoon drop to the ground? Because when you push it at the edge of the table, everything drops to the ground. You know, it's a sort of proto-explanation because you don't have any language. And then um, the, you hit a problem because one of these predictable things is mother. She comes and picks the spoon up and puts it back. But she doesn't do it very well. Sometimes she's a bit slow. Sometimes she doesn't notice and you know, nothing happens. So there's something wrong there. And this is where you move into magical thinking because the baby might, and again, it's ridiculous I'm putting into words, whereas it'll be just a sort of sense, that what if there's another me inside mother? I can begin to get not an explanation of her behavior now, but an understanding of it. If there's another me inside mother, I know what it's like to be bored and angry, you know, um, that's why she doesn't work so automatically. Um, I have to sort of smile at her and be, you know, do things that I would like in order to get it to. And so he's learning. And so the big experiment is for one of the steps into magical thinking is the idea that mind might exist outside your own head. Because that leads to the thing, you know, I wonder if the dog has got a me inside it. You know, that might explain rather better why it wags its tail when I pat it. Um, I know it feels lovely to embrace a beech tree. I wonder what the beech tree feels like. You know, um, the weather's looking a bit gloomy today. Um, uh, how is it feeling? You know, and what's it going to do next? And it's a whole way of looking at the world. Now, what strikes me is that um, critics used to say, 
oh, primitive man, because he hadn't learnt about material world and science, used to believe that mind was everywhere, you know, and he used to talk to trees and things like that and see spirits where they didn't exist. Now I say, no, actually, that, that's very sophisticated. Whereas all animals expect the world to be solid, hard material. You know, butterfly lands on a flower. It expects to find the flower is there. It's, it's a repeatable experiment in its material worlds. So everything lives in the material universe, but some more advanced creatures, including humans, have found another way of looking at the world, which is magical, where they bring it to life. So I see sort of in a way that is more sophisticated than the materialist view. And then there's an artistic view and then the religious view. And so um, now, so as a child, you begin being a physicist, then you become a magician and you're in the world of fairies and fantasies and things like that. And I remember that phase, you know, moomin trolls were under every tree and all that. And um, I hated cricket, so I would pick uh, Herb Robert um, because it was supposed to make it rain and it nearly always worked, you know, that I didn't have to play cricket. Um, and then, um, uh, yes, you, you're taught, yeah, part of the, this is one way I see it, is that um, you learn to make talismans, which can be spoken ones, you know, you sing or you do something or you dance, or quite often you take a paintbrush or a crayon and you do things on the paper. And really you're doing a ritual expression of your feelings. Now, first you might get the paper, you just get, and it tears up and everything, and you feel better. You've got rid of your frustration. But then you have these feelings towards mother, and you draw sort of a circle and sticks for the legs and all that. And you've expressed your love for mother or whatever you feel about her. Now, the wonderful thing is she sees it, and she goes, oh, and puts it on the fridge door. And everyone who comes and sees it goes, oh, clever boy, or whatever, you know. And you've made this extraordinary experiment, the discovery that something which was a subjective, powerful thing that you felt, in other words, a piece of magic, other people recognize it and see value in it. Now, that to me is when you're sort of moving into art, because an artist begins by doing something which really is a magical operation, making a talisman might be a song or acting something or dancing, or very often it's a sculpture or a painting or a book. And at that stage, it's just magic. But when other people say, wow, that is powerful, or I love that, then society is giving it value. And um, that to me is the discovery of art. And uh, yes, that's it sort of, an artistic way of looking at the world. Now, what can happen with art in time is that it becomes, certain things become, people use the word iconic. It's an icon. Um, and it, it's so recognized that it might become, like a, a piece of music might become a national anthem or a flag might become, uh, or uh, Mona Lisa is recognized as, you know, 
a masterpiece of Western culture, things like that. Then you're moving towards the idea of sort of religious feeling, because if everyone that you know is sort of bowing down to this thing and saying it's it's amazing, it's sacred, you're getting a cult thing working on that. And so um uh Yes, you begin to get a sense of hierarchy is building up. You know, there's good art and there's, and there's better art and there's great art. A sense of hierarchy, moving up that hierarchy, you get to the chief or the tribal chief or the king. And then um, as culture spreads, you realize there are other kings. Other people have got other kings. So which is the real king? The idea of the king of kings, a god which reigns over all of them. Okay, what's he look like? Well, he must be invisible because you know, uh, kings are immortal. So he must be immortal and invisible. So it's sort of, I can see how the idea of a god that lies outside time and space begins to evolve. And so religious thinking to me is a later development than artistic or magical thinking. Now, the thing that interests me about that is that uh, it is, you reach its purest form really in Protestantism, which is the idea that there's a one truth, which is the Bible. Um, the idea that there's one truth and all the others are misunderstandings. Now, that is very powerful but there is a problem because you have God and you have the world he created. So you actually end up with a duality. Um, the only advance beyond that that I can see is the scientific advance, which says actually God is the physical universe. It created itself by using the simple algorithms of chance combined with natural selection. So in a way, um, science resolved that by becoming the ultimate monotheism. You know, there is one God, it is matter. And um, uh, yes, so that's why science to me has inherited a lot of the religious sort of um, characteristics. Uh, people say, oh, no, it's not about belief. But actually, in practice, scientists believe that the world exists and is real. Um, it's the only thing that sort of makes sense of what they're doing. Um, and then, uh, as I say, I, moving to mathematics and realizing you can do this outrageous thing of deliberately choosing something which you know is not true and doesn't exist and working with it. Um, you're sort of coming back to magical thinking. Um, so I presented it in a very sort of, you know, evolutionary, evolutionary of thinking way. But I find it happening in a small way in my life, as I, to give the example that you gave me, you know, um, I began as a, a physicist, thump, 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 and then um, magical thinking. And it went through, and I remember the teenage phase of the poor religious teacher trying to sort of teach us about Jesus. And we'd say, how did he do his miracles? You know, 
where's the proof you know and all that we, we were being very much the the skeptical rationalist of that and yet um i go to cambridge and i find the works of crowley and i move into magical thinking and i've given the example of um yeah sort of uh I think of the sort of situation I remember, you know, uh, a digs with five students. They're all nerds, you know, they, they, they're studying um, IT and um, physics and things like that. And then they discover as nerds, they can explain everything away, you know. Um, uh, why didn't that girl want to come out with me? Why did she go with a rugby player? Oh, you know, it's it's the hormones, you know, and, and um, uh, she's attracted to the alpha male and things like that. You know, they read their psychology or they read their, um, they explain everything, but they find it still, they can't actually get what they want. So they, without realizing it, they step into magic. They see an advertisement for, um, I don't know, Coca-Cola, you know, be yourself, have fun, you know, let it all be free. And so they get Coca-Cola and they get the T-shirt and, the, and they buy the, um, the, the, the sort of Delimon designer shirt and all that um, in order to attract the women. They're doing magic. They're finding talismans of success that they can put on. So they're no longer being rational. <laughs> and they've slipped into that. And society encourages them because they're buying things, they're spending money, you know, it's, um, it's the way to go. Uh, and so, yeah, so you get this, um, depending on talismans, um, yeah. And some of them will actually go the whole hog and they'll join a pagan movement. And then they'll find girls that agree with them and they're in the same wavelength. So, you know, that's the sort of the move into the, of, of that particular group of um, Bolshe teenagers, how they move into actually becoming magicians and some of them admit it and others don't. And then um, I think that I can remember where you realize that there's a certain amount of play acting is needed in life. Um, and to me, this was sort of, um, the later 20s, where um, you did dress up with something which is a designer fashion, because that was a magical talisman to get you popular and successful and light. And then you realize that actually, you can express yourself. Um, it doesn't have to be a designer thing which you're told will win the girls over or whatever. You can actually find your own style and be your own person. And that really is, you're, you're an artist, you're, you're acting a drama in your life. And then um, it's very traditional that as, you, as your Saturn return comes up when you're 29 and a half or whatever it is, it's so dependable that you can do it, you can do cold reading on it. Look at someone and if he looks as though he's in his late 20s, you can look at his palm and say, I think you've reached a stage where you're beginning to wonder whether you made the right choices in life. And almost everyone will say, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, Because 
um, that is the stage where you wonder if you married young, did I do the right thing? If you didn't go to university and you went to work, did I do the right thing? If instead of going to work, you went to university and did higher education, did I do the right thing? It's when it comes up. And so there are these cycles and patterns in life if you know what you're looking for. Um, of course, you could equally take it apart and say, um, oh, you say I was doing magic when I was um, when I was 19. And um, no, actually, I was um, I was writing a test to see whether it worked buying a, a Armani T-shirt. You know, I tried it before and after I measured the results. You, know, you can always argue against it, that type of thing. Or you can look at it from a different angle and see a cycle, a pattern taking place. Now, the other thing that's interesting to me was that, um, say, the 50s was a very, very materialist, uh, rationalist, sceptical time. Um, and if you'd asked people at the time, they were absolutely sure that all that magic nonsense, spiritualism, it's all cranks. You know, that's all finished. We've, we've done with that. And yet it was followed by the 60s and the hippie revival and a magical revival. And the same thing happened in Victorian times. There was a tremendous age of science, which was when electricity was discovered and um, Darwin's theories came out and religion was tumbling before the might of science. Um, and yet by the time you reach the end of the century, you have this romantic revival, the interest in magic, the OTO, the, the, sorry, the golden dawn being found in these occult societies, things like that. And so I saw a cycle happening there. Now, I've seen that cycle in my own lifetime because uh, there was a magical revival around 1970, you know, it was in the height of it and, and I wrote my books. Then there was a time um, rather like the 20s of um, style and fashion. 80s was very sort of style conscious. The, the idea of designer clothing and designer fashion accessories, things like that, very 80s. And all the health fads that came up. Now that had happened in Victorian times and um, in the six, in the 1920s and 30s, same sort of new art forms. And I gave the example there was cinema. It was a whole new art form. Now in the 80s, it was, as far as I was concerned, was computer games, a totally new art form that began as just a, a thing you did in a pub, you know, um, sort of very stupid, mindless games. But I could see the time coming when they would really be emotionally involving. You know, they'd be passionate your involvement in a computer game. And I think that's happened. Not that I'm a gamer myself. Um, and then uh, the 1990s was famously the um, decade of evangelism. Um, it was a sort of very religious time that coming up the millennium. And then um, 1990s, uh, you had the skeptical movement after 2000. And uh, so the cycle is continuing like that. And we're now having a magical revival again. And I must stop at this point, I think, yeah. Well, then let's put a pin in it. Um, I must yeah. petition you for a sequel, I think. How do you feel about mm. that? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm open to that. Yes, right. You've got such an efficient system with your signing in on the thing and everything. It's just oh, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Right. Well, this, is, this has been so so fascinating, and uh, I think there's more to say about these cycles, and I'd I'd like to hear you say some more about them, in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, something of an analysis of where we are now and how we got here in, in the last 20 oh, years yeah. where it might be going yeah. next and that sort of thing. that's the next, na- natural next step and some very yeah. other interesting things about how to have more skillful conversations with these ideas of these different ways of thinking and these ideas of these different quadrants how to irritate or mm. offend or stimulate mm. By, mm. by bringing certain quadrants into contact with the others and so on lots of amazing yes. implications of what you've you've begun to lay out so I think we'll we can consider this a cliffhanger okay all right thank you very much final cell thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to another guru viking podcast for more interviews like these as well as articles videos and guided meditations visit www.guruviking.com